said it's no major or Bible, there's no stamp from, from you know, uh, France or America or China. I don't know. So he takes it down to Southern, you know, they, up there in New York, and they, they start looking at that hole, and he comes back. I mean, this is, if he had gone to Antique Roadshow, this would have been the, the end all of end all. He goes to Sotheby's, and they come back and say, uh, well, Mr. So-and-so, this bowl is from the Song Dynasty. That's, you, you know, right in that gallery. <laughs> no, no. Anytime the word dynasty is brought up, because everything's surrounded. It's in perfect condition. Uh, it is called a Gideon Bowl from the Song Dynasty, centuries and even millennia old. And you're investing, how much did you buy it for you? Three dollars. Uh, you have made a 700,000% increase. Uh, it is worth $2.2 million. And so he, he did all right at the garage sale. <laughs> uh, I'm sending a, a child to college in just about four months, and uh, I've got a bowl out back, and I wanted to, it's from the Wilford Dynasty, if you wanted to invest. Uh, it's got a ding in it. It's not a ding bowl, but it's ding up. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, they're thinking of that. Jeremiah and Isaiah talk about how we can be a whole lot like that bowl. Uh, we were crafted to be the image of Christ. We were created to be his ambassadors. We were created to be uh, his spokesmen in the world, not just in our confession, but also in the profession, the way we lived our lives. But if you're like me, and I know you are, because the Bible says that all have sinned and all have fallen short of that glory of the dynasty, of the king. And we've got a little bit dinged up. In fact, I'll confess, I've gotten a little bit more than dinged up. I've gotten really dinged up. And I've got these marks all over me. It's called sin. I've got cracks, I've got breaks, I've got chips. And I don't look a whole lot like my Lord anymore on many occasions. But there's good news. There's nothing in the New Testament. Old Testament says that there's coming a day, and we now understand that day has come. Jeremiah and Isaiah talk about a potter coming back and doesn't take that dinged up bowl and says, well, you did this to yourself, sir, if you're out of wood and so, and casting it out. But he begins to reshape and he begins to reform and he begins to make all things new. And he begins to do new things and he begins in a new testament to give a new hope and a new way. And a kingdom comes in a marvelous way. And no offense to Trey Bob's gift of the bacon of the lunch club. That's a neat gift. And no offense to a bowl that goes from $3 to $2.2 million. But there are many times that Satan comes to us and we're worth immeasurably more. We are worth more than any eye has seen, any ear has heard, any mind has conceived. But Satan comes in and he speaks, you're just a dinged up bowl. And you're $3 and no one's really buying and you're about to be discarded, not just in a garage sale, but on the trash heap of society. And Christ comes in and he begins to speak to us through his word, through his spirit, and it's what we're truly worth in him and because of him. And that is the gift. That is what troublemakers understand. Troublemakers are people who understand that God is still crafting them, that God is still growing them. In fact, what I want to talk about in the title of our talk today is troublemakers understand that God is still sowing in them. He's not done casting his word into them. 
He's not done bringing new life, new branches, new ways of being and the vine in him. He's showing new life from the very mouth of God that created all things, and now he desires to continue to create all things new. Troublemakers get it, that God didn't just do and one day he'll do again, but he is actively now showing into their lives. Last night, if you weren't with us, we took a, a look at uh, David, King David, and we're looking last night, this morning, and in our session in an hour or so at three different troublemakers and how they were called in the Bible troublemakers, those who live different than the fallen world and were bringing into the world new ways of kingdom life. We're going to get to the ultimate troublemaker this morning. Not the old David, but the new David. The one that is known as the son of David, the son of man, Jesus Christ. Last night we talked a little bit about how David was one who saw God. And out of seeing God, he trusted God. And out of seeing and trusting, he then acted. And he runs towards the giant. And he's one in running and acting that encourages others to join into the battle. And in all of this, he's even preparing for greater steps that are to come. And we can begin to take a theological stance of, well, I, I get your niche. Troublemakers see him and they serve. Troublemakers, followers, Christians, disciples of God, they believe in and they act. But the real question is, what do we see? Do we just see God behind the giant? Do we just see God behind the trials? And oh, there's God, and because I see him, I will now trust him, and I will be the one who acts. And that's a powerful thing to be about in a Christian walk. But I want to break the news to myself and to you this morning that that's not the full goodness of the gospel. It's not just about seeing God, and because he's there, we then serve. What the Bible is all about is understanding that he is the one that is serving, that he is the one that is acting, that he is the one. Why do I love? Why do I obey? Why do I act? I love because he first loved me. Everything I do is participating in a later response to what he has actually done. God is the one who is serving. God is the one that is moving. In fact, when Jesus decided to go through his greatest act of service, the act of service that he came to be about, when as he was looking towards Jerusalem and finally arrived in Jerusalem and was in that upper room with the twelve and the disciples and he was preparing to go through Calvary, go through Golgotha, take your cross and my cross and go up that hill and take all of our sins and take all of our scars and take all of our, our ways of living that are not of him and bear them in his body. He sat down at a meal. And this ultimate troublemaker for Satan, this ultimate troublemaker for a lost world, began to do some things. Now notice what the apostles are doing. They're all sitting down. And it's Jesus who is the one in action. It's Jesus who's 
gets up and takes the bread and breaks the bread and blesses the bread and gives the bread. In John 13's rendition, it is Jesus who takes the bread, breaks the bread, blesses the bread, gives the bread, and then stands up and takes off his outer clothing. And it is Jesus who wraps the towel around his waist. Mind you, it was the other apostles who said, no, no, we want to be the servants. Lord, you'll never touch my feet, Peter said. And Jesus said, unless you let me do this, you have no part in me. To which Peter said, well, then not just the feet, but the whole body. He finally gets it. See, many times we want to serve Jesus. We want to see him. And in seeing him, we now want to serve. And Jesus said, that's getting the cart before the horse. You need to see me, not just see me, but see me serving. And then after he takes off the outer clothing, and after he has a conversation with Peter, he then begins to wash feet. Even Judas, who he already knew what he was doing. See, I keep waiting for John 13 to read like this. And he did Peter, and he did Thomas, and he did John, and he does the others, and he does the others, and he does Philip. And coming to Judas, he kind of gives him a dirty look and passes on by. I wonder if you had been there, if you had timed it and said, wow, Peter has some pretty serious program working. I mean, five minutes on his feet. Oh, Philip, man, what have you been walking in? Seven minutes on his feet. Oh, Thomas, man, oh, good night. I mean, six minutes just washing your feet. Knowing our Lord, it's not in the Bible, but I wouldn't be surprised if you've been there five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes, five minutes, six minutes, seven minutes. Huh, Judas, 22 minutes. Knowing our Lord is the one who needed to be washed the most that he would have spent the most time on. That's what he's done with me. That's what he's done with me. He's one that doesn't pass his by. He's one that doesn't slide. He's one that pours that much more love into us. Do you understand what he's done for you? Do we understand that it is he that is moving, that it is he that is going to the cross? Our first point this morning is this. Troublemakers are served. See, we want to jump ahead and think that troublemakers serve, and they do. But before a troublemaker ever serves, a troublemaker, a disciple, a Christian, an on-fire follower of Christ, understands that he has been served by Christ. You show me a Christian that's kind of serving, and I'll show you a Christian who kind of understands what's up in the Bible. You show me a Christian who is on fire, running towards the battle, and I'll show you a Christian who understands the Lord that has run for him right up the hill of Calvary and into death because of him. Troublemakers are served. And yes, to one degree, all people are served. God calls us to reign the fall from good and bad. But it's Christians, it's those that go against the grain who really understand what Christ has fully done for them, and not just the bringing of the rain, but the bringing of the kingdom's rain in their life. See, I've had a problem with this all my life. I wonder if any of you guys were raised in a church, like my church, where there were certain prayers that were prayed when you were kids, and you didn't really understand what they meant, but you knew they were coming. Here was one of the prayers that I got at my church growing up. Every Sunday, somebody got up, I thought it was in the Bible, that uh, somewhere in the middle of the service, the third commandment of the Ten Commandments was, someone should say, Lord, at this time, would you guide, guard, and pray? That's where you grew up in church, I think. <laughs> it wasn't just God guard, and God guard and direct us. Because 
before the preacher would preach, someone would get up and say, Lord, please give him a ready same I mean, it was never a normal language. Oh, God, would you tell Bob, remember what he wrote down a moment ago? Oh, no, Father, give him a ready revelation. You know? You're, I'm five years old. Going, what does that mean? Another prayer that was uh, always at the end of service. Instead of, Lord, uh, bring us, you know, help us come back again. Lord, would you deliver us back again at the next appointed? Oh, yes. All right. Same church again. And then this one, this one varied a little bit. But someone would get up, and, and they didn't mean this, but this is the way I heard it. And I didn't just hear this off at age five. I heard this one off at the age of 25, and sometimes age 35. And then in about a week, I could still get it wrong at the age of 45. Someone would get up, and they're hard about I'm not mocking them, I'm, and I'm not mocking those past prayers. I love the church I grew up in. They gave me this. And then this gave me peace. I love those people very much. But the prayer that I got off was someone would get up and say, Lord, we, we pray that what we are doing now is an acceptable offering unto you. And I would hear that prayer. And, and, and to a degree, I appreciate that prayer. But what I was doing as a kid sitting out in the pew was this. If I'm the one doing something, and God is up in the throne room, and I think you've probably done a little bit of this too, and he's up there listening to us and watching us, and apparently we need to pray that what we're doing is right so that it will be an acceptable offering to him. Did you ever kind of hear that? I, I did. What the Bible says in Luke 22, and what the Bible says in Matthew and Mark, and what the Bible says in John 13 about the Lord's Supper is, God is not the audience. See, the way I was hearing that prayer is we were the one doing things, and if it was accurate and correct, then our actions to our audience would be being acceptable. And since we were kind of off sometimes, we even wanted to have a humble heart and pray that it was acceptable to him. And I'm all about offering up right hearts to the Lord. But I went too far with it in thinking we were the ones doing the work, and he was the audience listening. The Bible says this, that on the first day of the week, we are to, to come together and remember that we are the audience. And he is the one who has done the work. Don't let me get stuck on that first point of well, worship working and offering these songs and singing, or I've got to get my heart right in a minute or two. I'm thinking about chocolate pie at the cafeteria, and then I'm thinking about the cowboys and this preacher's going a long time. I'm going to miss it off. And then, you know, no, 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 no. Lord, help me, help this be an acceptable offering. And as long as I'm doing that stuff, it's never going to be an acceptable offering. Now, I'm not talking about. The chocolate pie and the cowboys come out me trying to get my heart right. It is Christ who is working to get my heart right. And I am the audience. We even let this slip into our language. I still do it today. And I always correct myself when I meet a congregation. I'll say, hey guys, tomorrow at our plaza, we've got an 8 30 service and an 11 o'clock service. And they go, you did? I said, yeah. 
Thomas, William Thomas, Mr. Church. We're coming together to do a service. See, what I really call it is, and we don't, I don't get hung up on that, but what I'm trying to learn to call it is, is the descendant. Where we come and assemble and we watch what the living Lord does by faith and through his actions on the cross and the resurrection. And even now, as David would say, the living God. Troublemakers are servants. Read with me in Hebrews 11, 39 through 40. You got it in the Bible? Go ahead and turn in there. If you don't, I have it on PowerPoint for you. Hebrews 11, 39 and 40. Completely fits in with Christians are servants. Disciples are servants. Yet you may even a minute want to mark some of these underlinings in your Bible. Make notes on a page. This talks about a group of troublemakers. Hebrews 11 is known as the Hall of Fame of Faith passage. You talk about troublemakers. The world tried to saw these jokers in two. Tried to set these guys on fire. These guys were such troublemakers that the world was not worthy of them, and they had to live in caves and stuff like that. But these are the true troublemakers. What about them? How were they troublemakers? How was their vision such that they lived so differently? These troublemakers were all commended for their faith. Not their actions. Yet none of them received what had been promised. God had planned something better for us so that only together with us would they be made perfect. But let me read who's doing all the work. He is the one commending. These were all commending. He is the one giving. He is the one promising. He is the one planning something better. He is the one planning something better so that together he will do the uniting. He is the one doing all of the things. He is the one perfecting faith. I read this passage now and like the troublemakers weren't doing anything. They're the ones receiving commendation. They're the ones who are receiving a gift. They're the ones who are receiving a promise. They are the ones who are acting in God's plan and waiting in God's plan that together with us, God will do the uniting with them. God is the one doing the perfecting. We like to think sometimes that it's Christians who are doing the service. Christians only do the service and Christians only love when they realize that they first have been loved, they have first been served. What did he sing the last song before I got up and started talking? You believe this already. You sang moments ago this. He joins us here. He breaks the bread. He's the Lord who pours the cup, who's risen from the dead. He's the one we love the most because of this. He is our gracious hope. The church didn't come up with this idea of the church. The church didn't come up with this idea of his table of grace. He's the hope. Sometimes we sing another song before the Lord's Supper. Come at his invitation, not mine, and receive from his nail-scarred hands. See, Christians understand that they are servants. Christians understand, troublemakers understand, he is the one moving. He's the one initiating. Turn your Bibles to Psalm 113. In Luke 22 and John 13, 
when they gathered at that inauguration and launching of the Lord's Supper that we still celebrate today, that we do in remembrance of what he has done, this, it, this song is known as one of the halal songs, and this is the song that they sang. At that first Lord's Supper, in that upper room, praise the Lord. Praise, O servants of the Lord. Praise the name of the Lord. Let the name of the Lord be praised, both now and forevermore. From the rising of the sun to the place where it sets, the name of the Lord is to be praised. The Lord is exalted over all the nations, his glory above the heavens. Who is like the Lord our God, the one who sits enthroned on high? I mean, this whole song so far has just been put him higher, put him higher, put him higher, put him higher. Enthroned, enthroned, enthroned. And about the time you think that's where the glory is all about, the whole thing switches and tells us what his glory really is. The one who is enthroned. Who stoops down to look on the heavens and the earth? Who raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap? He seats them with princes, with the princes of their people. He settles the barren woman in her home as a happy mother of children. Praise the Lord. The woman with no future, who has no children, the Lord steps in, the woman who has no future, and when God's done, he settles her in a home with a whole group of kids. When you think you're done and there is no future, he is the one who's enthroned, who stoops down, John 13, and begins to wash your feet. He takes the poor, he lifts them from the ash heap, and he takes us and he seats us with princes. Romans 8 and 17. Co-heirs with Christ. I've Romans 16, 11 through 13 says this. 
Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Back to offering. Once you realize what he's done for you, do not offer the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness, but rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. One of my favorite stories is in Matthew 12. No offense to anyone where this may touch a loved one in your family. In Matthew 12, we remember that over and over again as Jesus is healing, there are people who cry out, healing, blind, lame, sick, son is dead, dying, come and heal. Matthew 12, we have a guy, here's my no offense part, my best rendition of a withered hand. Got a guy with a withered hand who doesn't come for help. He's just in the synagogue and he's kind of fine with his weakness. And guess who's not fine with his weakness? Wow. There's some deep, deep spiritual stuff. There may be something in your life that's been withered for a long time. So long that guess what? You're not asking Jesus to help you. You're kind of okay with it. You're kind of embarrassed by it, but you, you really don't need to see it anymore. Matthew 12 tells me that the withering in your life, the sin in your life, the routine in your life, Jesus isn't okay with it. He'll come and seek you out and want to make what was weak strong again. And so the man with the withered hand is in church service, so to speak, and Jesus walks up, and the guy's not even looking for help with his weakness, and Jesus walks up, and what's he say to him? Stick out your hand. You know what I would have done? If I could see it. Everyone's watching now. Stick out your hand. He didn't tell him to stick out your withered hand, did he? He said, stick out your Men, we would have done that, wouldn't we? Big room. Here's my strength, Lord. Use this. What did Jesus in that battle end? He doesn't want your strength. He wants you to offer him your weakness. He didn't come for the help. He came for the sick. We've got to be people who offer this up. And when you offer this up, you get the one they lift this up. Because Jesus restores and Jesus heals. That's a deep word to me and to you. And we can let that stay in this room moments as we begin to break bread and the word of life and share life together, we can begin to, James 5, 17, you go to God for your forgiveness, but confess your sins one to another for your healing. What are we going to offer up? Finally, number three, once you realize you serve and once you offer your weakness, he brings restoration. Troublemakers witness what he's done in their life. Paul. His love for the Lord does nothing but grow all throughout his life. All Paul's love does is just grow. Sure, there's some setbacks, but it just grows. 
So what does Paul refer to himself at the beginning of his ministry? One of his first letters. He's kind of being compared to uh, Peter, and he actually wasn't one of the twelve. And so Peter, Paul basically kind of does a Jay-Z, you know, dust it off, and he says, uh, hey, I want you to know that I'm a super apostle. Uh, Peter, those fellows, they kind of got a regular call. Wrote the message. Special one-on-one -on -one presentation. I am a super apostle. Paul walks with us more and more. Later, later. <coughs> hey, Paul, who are you? I'm an apostle. Oh, you're not a super? I'm an apostle. A little bit later. Hey, Paul, who are you? See, when you realize you can serve, when you realize that you're offering backwards, and the great thing about offering backwards, you can't outdo it the Lord. You try to outdo it. And now he just keeps pouring it on more and more. Super apostle, apostle. Hey, Paul, who are you?
and it didn't work out the way he wanted it to work out. And here's that conversation.
even now in a special way as this body gathers tomorrow. That we will come to a, a service. A father, if we call it that, will at least understand it's a service because you're the one doing the service. From your nail side in, you're the host. You, Father, take, break, bless, and give the bread. Father, it's what you've done on the cross. And Father, we now get to offer back our lives no longer as instruments of wickedness, but as instruments of righteousness. What, what a great thing. That you not only save us, but the Father through your Spirit be sanctified and now work through us. Father, we thank you. We thank you. May we embrace that fully. Be the best thing that we can be for you or ourselves. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. The questions that you're going to go through in just a moment.